right. Well, as you guys grab your things that you need and take your seats, um, I got a fire in my heart today, and it is from the Lord, and it's to give to you guys, and it's nothing of myself, but it is God's word, and I believe that he really wants to speak to all of you today, and um, I encourage you to take notes, uh, especially, especially eighth graders. This is your last, I mean, Wednesday, true, but this is your last Sunday, Sunday sermon that you'll hear in this way, and I believe God really wants to do some things in our hearts this morning. The title of the message is Stirred Up, and we'll be in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 13. And so, uh, no introduction today, we're just going to get right into it, read all 13 verses together, and then uh, begin to talk through those, all right? If you are in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, say word. If you're not there yet, say word when you get there. Give you one more moment. Here's some pages slipping. If you don't have a Bible, you can either borrow one or uh, check your neighbor's Bible as well. All right, we're going to read it. Second Peter, chapter one, verse one through thirteen, and then we'll pray and make sure. Remember, what's the most important part of the sermon? This part right here. When we read the word of God, all right? So don't, if you don't pay attention during this part, guess what you're not going to get? The whole teaching. It's not going to make sense. So make sure you follow along. First, Second Peter 1, starting in verse 1. The Bible says here, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of God, our Savior, and, or our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Verse four, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, the promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue, add knowledge, to knowledge, add self-control, to self-control, add perseverance, to perseverance, add godliness, to godliness, add brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, add love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." Verse 9, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. If you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding Father, we thank you for your word and your message to us. God, I pray that as we look at your promises and your power, that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that you would reveal the things that need to be added to our life. And, and Lord, I know it's not a work of trying harder or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It is by you working in our lives. And so we thank you for your involvement in our lives, and we pray that you would make us more like Jesus by the end of this study today. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said? And we all said? Amen. Amen. I want to stir you up today. Just like Peter is writing, and in verse 12 and 13, you'll find Peter say that. He said, I want to stir you up. And that's what I want to do for you today. The word stir up there in verse 13, I know it's kind of funny because we're starting with the 
last two verses we read, but it makes sense in the long run of things. Because if you notice in verse 12 and 13, he says these things, and these things are in verses 1 through 11. But he says, I want to stir you up. To stir someone up means to stimulate their thinking or to refresh their memory. In other contexts, the same word is used as being wakened up from sleep. After the angel met Joseph in the early parts of the Gospels in his dream, the Bible says he was aroused to, uh, from his sleep. It means after that dream, he woke up. And he's like, oh my gosh, an angel just appeared to me. This is nuts. Or when they woke up Jesus when he was sleeping in the boat when the storm was going on. Remember that story? That's that same word, to be aroused from sleep or to be woken up, to be stirred up. You see, Satan would love, everyone look at me today, Satan would love for you to go about your life sleeping, making no impact. And with many things in the world, he causes Christians to go to sleep. But what I want to tell you today is wake up, wake up. Romans 13 Verse 12 says, or verse 11 says this, and do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Do you guys know what stagnant water is? It's when it's not moving, right? It's when there's no inflow and there's no outflow. And what, are, what does stagnant water produce? Mosquitoes, bacteria, nasty stuff. Yet what Satan would love to have for the Christian is to be a stagnant Christian. No inflow, not receiving anything from the Lord and not giving anything out. But what I want to stir you up today, and for Paul, how did he stir, or for Peter, sorry, how did he stir them up? How did he begin to stimulate their thinking and to wake them up? Well, look at verse 12 and 13 in your Bibles. He says, I want to remind you of these things. Meaning that Peter writing, he isn't saying anything his readers hadn't heard before. It wasn't anything new. Maybe it was some of the things they already knew. And I have personally found that the things that have the most impact in my life are not necessarily new things, but rather the same The same things that are put in a new way, a fresh perspective maybe. You know, a lot of you guys know that I've grown up in this church. I've sat where you sat. And I have a very vivid memory of of being uh, going into my 10th grade year and, and hearing so many sermons before that. But there's something about that night, that Thursday night at camp, August 18th, 2011, when, when I, it wasn't anything new I heard. It wasn't that I, I heard about Jesus for the first time. It's when it clicked. It's when a light bulb for me personally turned on, but it wasn't anything new. I could recite you the gospel, but I wasn't living the gospel. And there's these moments in life where God will speak to you. And usually it's, it's through his, it's always through his word, But what I found, there's these moments when I'm sitting under the teaching of someone and and there's just a teaching that hits me differently. It's like God is speaking directly to me where everyone else fades away. I don't care what Bobby's doing next to me or I don't know why Bobby, we don't even have any Bobbies in here. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. God's speaking to me through his word. And so I want to listen because I know God is going to change me. And this has happened not just that time uh, when I was in high school, but there's, been these, there's been these moments where I know God's speaking to me so clearly. And usually it's through truths I already know put in new ways. And oftentimes, guys, this is how God works. He uses someone else in our life to stir us up, to say, hey, wake up. Heaven is real. Christ is coming. This Satan is out there and he hates you. And it's usually by the way of reminder. Do you guys play sports? Do you guys watch sports movies? Maybe you've seen, hopefully you either play sports or you've seen a sports movie. Nonetheless, you know that moment during halftime when, the, when they're down by like 30 points and the coach is like, is like hyping up the team? 
But it's not just hype. He like actually has a plan. He's not just like, go out there and get them. Because that really does nothing. It's like, yeah, we've been trying and we're down by 30 points. But there's the moment at halftime where he doesn't just hype them up. That's not my goal today. My goal isn't just to hype you up and get you really excited. My goal today is to lay out a plan for you to pursue. Like the coach would during halftime say, hey, we're changing it up. This is what we're doing. This is the new game plan. What I want to encourage you today is not to let this sermon go in one ear and out the other. You know, I have no doubt when I was in junior high where you were, and I was under the teaching of Pastor David, that God was planting seeds in my heart. But I can tell you that I don't remember one sermon. And I can tell you that not just because I had bad memory, but because of the way I was listening. You see, when I was in junior high, I didn't care. I didn't want to hear the Bible study. I was there because there was a snack bar. I literally went on Wednesday nights because they sold soda back then for 50 cents. And I'm not that old. It was just cheaper back then. Things have gone up a lot. They sold that, you know, the sour punch straws, they sold those and you get like so many for like 50 cents. So you'd bring a dollar and you're like, you're like, so that's why I went to Wednesday night service legitimately. It wasn't because I wanted to hear. And that was me. In junior high, I was rebellious. Those were the times where I didn't have a relationship with God. Now, I know that God is good, but I so wish that when I was in junior high, I would have listened. I would have woke up. I would have been stirred up. God's faithful, and he used those seeds that were planted later in my life once he harvested that, once he gave the increase and the harvest came in high school. But in junior high, I mean, they just went in the ear, one in in one ear and out the other. You see, but, and God doesn't just want to plant seeds in your heart for later. It's not like you take this sermon, okay, once I become an adult, then I'll open it up and follow it. No, God wants to do something in your life now. And if you haven't listened to one message for the last two years, if you're an eighth grader, listen to at least one, okay? This one today. And the way that Peter stirs up the people he's writing to is by three different ways that I want you to write down, okay? So I want to stir you up today. Number one, by reminding you of his power and promises. Of his power and promises. Now, if you look at verses one through four, you'll see that custom kind of greeting. We know that Peter is obviously the author. He's a bondservant. He describes himself as an apostle. He's, writ- he's writing to those who have obtained like precious faith, meaning he's writing to believers. And he's desiring grace and peace in the lives of his readers, which he knows only comes through the knowledge of Jesus. And that's verse one and two. But then in verse 3, he begins to talk about God's power. Look in your Bibles. Verse 3, he says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You see, God's power towards us is not a selfish power. It is a giving power. And what has he given us? Well, there's a purpose. God doesn't just give us power to be able to like, do things. Uh, that are random. There's a purpose to the power. Because without purpose to power, it's pointless. Imagine a truck that has a really uh, strong engine, but has no tires. It's like, okay, it's not going anywhere. It doesn't matter. The power that God has given you and I pertains to two things. If you look at verse three, life and godliness. God has given us everything we need to, for our lives and to live a godly life. Colossians 2.10 tells us that we are complete in him, meaning that we have everything we need in Jesus. We don't need to go to any other source, that we are complete in him. And so not only has excuse me, God given us the power to live a life, in a godly way, but he's given us this same power, through the same power, God has made promises to you and I. And so it's his power, but through his power, he's been able to promise us stuff. You see, a promise is only as good as the power of the person to be able to keep it. Did you guys hear me? 
A promise is worthless if the person doesn't have the power to keep it, right? Anyone can make a promise, but it is an altogether different thing to keep a promise. You see, right now, I could promise you, I could say, hey, Matthew, after service, I'm going to buy you a Tesla. I could look to someone else and say, hey, uh, Ben, I can promise you that after service, I could buy you every single Hawaiian island. Or I could say, um, Sam, I can promise you that for every day starting tomorrow, I'm going to give you $100. Anyone can make promises. It's another thing to be able to keep the promise. And God doesn't just say things. He puts power behind his promises. And we see in verse 4 that his promises are described in two different ways. Look in your Bibles. Two different ways. Maybe you'll find them. The first way in verse 4 is that they are exceedingly great. This means that they are remarkable. This means that they are out of the ordinary. But they're also precious. This means valuable, inexpressible value. But where does God's power and his promises really ultimately lead us to? Well, look at verse 4. The Bible says that his, by his great and precious promises, which he's able to keep because of his power, that through these you may be what? Someone tell me. Through these you may be what? Look in your Bibles. Austin. Partakers. Everyone say partakers. Now look to your neighbor and say partakers. Now look to your other neighbor and say partakers. You and I, through God's power and his promises towards us, he has enabled us to partake. Do you guys know what it means to partake in something? It means, yeah, participate. It means to be a part of. To partake in a pizza means you eat the pizza, right? It means that you are a sharer. And you and I have become partakers of the divine nature, meaning God has come into our lives that we now are partakers of Jesus and everything that Jesus has. The Bible describes us as co-heirs with Christ, meaning that there's nothing that God has held back from us, which the Bible says here in verse four, in turn allows us to escape the corruption or the depravity of the world. However, you and I are not out of this world just yet, right? You're here. I don't know if you know that, but you're here. You're in the world. God will one day take you out of the world, but God still has us here, which means there is still work to be done. Now turn to the person behind you and say, there's work to be done. There is work to be done. And not only do I want to stir you up by reminding you that, that God has the power to keep his promises... But the second thing, because we're not out of the world and God has work for us to do, I want to remind you to be diligent. Just like Peter reminded his readers to be diligent, verses 5 through 9. You see, God has set everything up for us. I remember when I was younger, I played t-ball. You guys ever played t-ball? I don't know why, but I was terrible at t-ball. I played two years. I was super young. I think I was like, I started when the earliest you could. Um, I played baseball for 11 years, and I think I started when I was like four, and I was so bad. And they like set it all up for you. Now, I got good my third year for some reason. When I wasn't set up, that's when I started getting better. But my, those first two years of t-ball, I was like not just like bad. I was the worst person on the team, which is so weird because I wasn't like that later. But I was bad. I don't know what it was. I don't know if I was still growing, couldn't figure things out. But T-ball, they set everything up for you. I mean, there's only a T, and they put the ball, and all you got to do is come with the bat and swing. And for you and I, God has set everything up for us. He's given us his power. He's promised us what we need. He's given us everything we need to live a godly life. We just got to step up and show up and swing the bat. Swing the bat. But some of you guys aren't swinging the bat. You're still in the dugout. Heck, you're still at home. Get in the game. Swing the bat. How do we do this? Well, verse 5, look in your Bibles. Verse 5, he says, for this very reason. For this very reason. 
meaning in light of what he just talked about in verse three and four, in light of God's power, everyone say power. No, you gotta say like power though. And his promises, his power and promises, the Bible says here, for this very reason, meaning verse three and four, you can label as God's part. Verse five through nine is our response to the supplied power and the given promises. Does that make sense? So verse five is the start, is when you guys now step up to the bat. Verse three and four, he puts the ball on the tee. I've given you everything you need, but I can't swing the bat for you. Verse five through nine is when you and I step up and swing the bat. You see, before the directive that he's about to give, Peter gives a little instruction of what kind of attitude and spirit we ought to have as we do what he's about to direct. Look at verse five. For this very reason, giving all diligence. You see, giving all all diligence isn't the directive. It's rather the instruction of what kind of spirit or attitude we are to have as we do what he's about to direct. To give all diligence, it means to to do one's very best to bring into effect or operation. All, you know what all means? Entirely. All of it, meaning all of ourselves. Diligence, it's to have an eagerness and an effort exerted. It's to have an excitement even. Another way to put it is to be all in. Everyone say all in. Have you guys ever seen someone that plays sports and they're all in? Uh, He's not here today, but you guys know Daniel, uh, the second service leader? Okay, this dude, if you ever play spike ball with this dude, it's ridiculous. He has no regard for his body. Like he's playing and he's just diving and it's like, like I dive when I play spike. Do you guys know what spike ball is? It's very fun. Like I'm diving when I play. But he's like, oh my gosh, are you okay after a round? Because he's just like, and he's athletic, so he's able to jump. It's because he's all in. And the Bible says that you and I are to be all in for Jesus. Romans 12, 11 puts it this way. He tells us that we are not to be lagging in diligence and to be fervent in spirit. You know what it means to lag? Some of you guys are big laggers. You lag to the car. It means to be lazy and reluctant. But the Bible says that we are not to be lagging in diligence and effort, but we are to be fervent. It means to be inflamed, to show great enthusiasm. And aren't there some things that we show enthusiasm and passion for? There are. There are a lot of things that we are enthusiastic and passionate about. Maybe it's some sport. Maybe you guys are stoked that the Dodgers are going to play like July 23rd or something like that. Lakers are going to start playing the Clippers at the end of July too. Maybe you're like stoked about that. You know every player's name and you're enthusiastic. If you're an Angels fan, I'm sorry. Um, And and maybe it's food. Maybe it's food that you're enthusiastic about. As you know, I am because I talk about it every sermon. Maybe it's a TV show. You're like following it. And especially right now, you're like binging the heck out of this show. And you're like, you know every character. And you're like, do you know that's just a show? But, or maybe it's some movie. You're like, you're like an Avenger like freak. And you have like action figures and comics and things. And you're like, oh my gosh. You, your blanket at home is Avengers, right? There are things in life that we are enthusiastic and passionate about. But how much more should we be enthusiastic and passionate about of the things of God? But are we? There are things in life that that we give our time and effort to. Maybe it's music. Man, I don't know how some people are so good with music. Where you like ask them, hey, like, you know, do you know this guy? And they like know him and they know all the songs. Or you look at their playlist and it's because they spend hours and time listening to music and they know all these, these artists and they have Spotify. So this artist connects them to this artist and they know this artist that no one else knows. And you know those people that are super into music and they give time and effort into it. Or maybe it's a hobby of some kind. Maybe for you it's horses or dance or video games. Hopefully not the last one. But you know what I mean? There's things that we give time and effort towards. And we're enthusiastic and passionate about. And some of you guys are quiet until that subject is brought up, right? You're like kind of reserved. And then someone's like, yeah, 
I don't know about that last Star Wars movie. And then you're like, oh my gosh, Star Wars. And you're like, where did you come from? Right? There's things that we're excited about. But shouldn't we be like those things with the things of God? And he says, with this kind of spirit, this excited, enthusiastic, this passionate, giving all diligence, he says, add to your faith. Look at verse five. Add to your faith. Add to it. You see, the Bible tells us that faith is the foundation. We saw back in First Peter that uh, chapter, Second uh, Peter, chapter one, verse two, or sorry, verse one. He says, "Precious faith." Look, you can't build anything without a foundation. There has to be a starting point. To build something without a foundation is like trying to play Jenga without a table. It's like trying to play Jenga in the middle of the air with nothing holding it up. Guess what? Your blocks are going to fall. You ain't going to be playing Jenga. There's got to be a foundation. And there's got to be a starting point. And for you and I, it's faith. But there is more that we are to add to our faith. God desires us to grow in our faith. And Peter desires his readers not just to be content with having faith in God, and then they just go back to their regular lives, but how many Christians are like that? They're like, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to do whatever I want now. No, God wants us to add to our faith. God has so much more he wants to do in us now. Remember verse three, it's that by his power, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, but faith is the foundation and we must go on. And so in verses six and seven, you'll see that Peter goes on to give seven additives to faith, meaning seven things to add to the foundation of faith. You can kind of look at these as seven ingredients to a life of a complete Christian. You could call them seven qualities Uh, that we are to have in our life. You can kind of look at faith as the base ingredient, and then the seven are the things that you add to that foundation, okay? I'll give it kind of to you uh, in this illustration, talking about food. Think about a pizza, okay? (laughs) Faith is the dough, okay? Just hold on with me. Faith is the dough, meaning what if you don't have dough and a pizza? Guess what you have? You have a salad, right? You have, you have, not really, I mean, you have a bunch of meat. You just got a bunch of toppings. So you got the dough, okay? And these seven things, I want you to look at them like the toppings, like the marinara sauce and the cheese and the pepperoni and the sausage and whatever else you like on it. Without the dough, you just got a bunch of ingredients and that would not be good. But without the ingredients, all you have is dough. It's like, okay, I mean, dough's good, but But together, guess what you got? You got a pizza, all right? So you got faith is the foundation, but we must go on. And with that mind, let's call these seven qualities we find here our toppings, okay? So topping number one, you ready? Are you ready? Number one, the Bible says that we are to add virtue to our faith. This is moral excellence. It's based on God's standards, but it is self-imposed higher standards. You guys hear me? Self-imposed higher standards, meaning there's not a pressure from an outside source, other than, of course, God wants us to be virtuous, but virtue doesn't come by, oh, well, mom made me virtuous, or my teacher made me have high standards. No, it's going to be a personal choice. Think of a virtuous person as someone who has high standards for himself, okay? And this is with small and big things. For example, to, have a, to be a virtuous person is to have high standards for your body, keeping yourself pure and private, being modest and appropriate. High standards is, is for what you watch and listen to. We should have high moral standards, high standards of what you say keeping your word and being someone of integrity. We should have high standards of what we do, not being lazy, but being a servant, right? It's to have self-imposed high standards, not, oh, I'm just doing that because my teacher's looking. I'm just doing that because my leader is around. I'm just doing that because mom's home. No, it's when people aren't looking. That would be a true virtuous person. You know, it's interesting. There's this thing going on right now 
uh, on social media, and it's called the shopping cart theory. Have you ever heard of it? The shopping cart theory. You can put up the picture. Uh, So this is the picture that's been going viral, okay? And there's this article on there, and it's something called the shopping cart theory, and it's been going around, and it basically tests one's moral character, which can be determined, they say, by choosing to return a shopping cart to its designated spot after use. Or the other choice, right? There's two choices. See the guy with the liver? He's either going to put it into the stall, which did you know they used to not have stalls? They used to have to go and actually put them in back in the store. Oh my gosh, so far. But then because people weren't doing it, they're like, I guess we'll put it in like 10 parking spots so there's less parking. Or you could just leave it. Now I can tell you, this was convicting looking at, because I'm like, I'm a terrible person. I always put the, I don't, I mean, I sometimes put the car back, but if I'm in a hurry, then I, Sometimes, so it goes like this. The guy that kind of came up with this, he says, the shopping cart is the ultimate test for whether a person is capable of self-governing. To return the shopping cart is an easy, convenient task, one which we all recognize is the correct and appropriate thing to do. Does anyone disagree that we shouldn't, like, shouldn't put the shopping carts back? You're like, shopping carts, lives matter, and we should, we should not put it back. <laughs> no, right? It's like, we should, put it, we should put it back. No one disagrees with that. So we're, to return the shopping cart is objectively right. There are no situations other than dire emergencies in which a person is not able to return their cart. Simultaneously, it is not an illegal thing to abandon your shopping cart. Therefore, the shopping cart presents itself as the apex example of whether a person will do the, what is right without being forced to do it. I can tell you, I'm not good at this. But after looking at this and after studying this passage, I'm like, I got to be more virtuous. I got to have higher standards. I got to put the shopping cart back. Now, I think it's an interesting theory for sure. Now, thank God that you putting the shopping cart back or not, that doesn't, that's not going to determine your salvation. There are people who are on their way to destruction that always put their shopping cart back, right? <laughs> it's not like the, the means for salvation, but how much more should you and I, who have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, have higher standards for someone that doesn't believe in God? Yet how often are people that have, uh, you know, believe in a false God or, or, or maybe have no God, they're like very moral people. Now, ultimately, God's put morality in our hearts, and so that comes from God. But nonetheless, how much more should you and I? And trust me, the whole application of this sermon is not so that you'll put shopping carts away. Like, the grocery stores didn't pay me to do this. But I think it's interesting The second thing we're to add to our faith is knowledge. God desires us to grow in our knowledge of him and his word. You see, faith, it doesn't replace knowledge. We don't have a blind faith that we just check our mind at the door and we can come into church or walk through life in ignorance. No, God says, come and let us reason together. God is the one who invented knowledge and wisdom in it. And really true knowledge and wisdom resides with God. And you and I as Christians, we ought to be a student of the word, but also a student of the world that God has made. You should be getting good grades. You should be. Now, if you're struggling, that's different. If you're lazy and you're not adding knowledge... That's an issue. Add knowledge. And also not just, I I think it's talking about twofold. I I think it's talking about the things maybe that we learn about the world, not like world system, but the world that God created. But also, guys, we got to be students of the word. You're going to be out there in the real world soon, and you're going to be swayed. And if you don't know the word, if you don't have, if you're not adding knowledge to your faith, soon your faith will begin to dissipate. Because people will come of the world with knowledge, and they will destroy your faith. And that's what Satan would love to do. And so we are to add the knowledge of the word, which is the sword of the spirit, the word of God, which enables us to be able to fight every high thing that exalts itself up against God. You and I, our battle is not physical, it is spiritual. 
And when we read the word of God, there is spiritual strength that we are gaining to be able to fight and defend our faith personally. It's awesome. The third thing is self-control. We are to add to our faith self-control. You see, knowledge isn't enough by itself. 1 Corinthians 8.1 tells us that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You know, sometimes there's a too big of gap between what we know and what we do. Some have said this is better understood as God control. As this is the fruit of the Spirit, therefore it can only be truly, fully practiced under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The fourth thing, we'll go through these quickly, is perseverance. The fourth thing that Peter exhorts his readers and begins to stir them up is to persevere, to keep going. Some of us throw in the towel too quickly. The, the word perseverance means to have a steadfast endurance. It's the ability to withstand hardship and stress. It's the moment when you're running and you want to stop, but you keep going. It's to endure. Hebrews 10.36 tells us that we have in need of endurance. Hebrews 12.1 tells us to run the race with endurance. Have you guys ever seen Survivor before, that show? Not too many people watch it anymore. Uh, when I was younger, it got, when it first started, it was big. And I remember they always had these challenges, right? They have these challenges, and, and then they get, like, immunity if they, get, they win the challenge. And so often, they were endurance challenges, meaning you had to, like, hold a pot above your head. And they would be out there for, like, 10 hours, right? And because they have nothing else to do, they're just trying to survive in the wild, and so they just hold a pot above their head. And the first one to, right, throw it down and let go loses and, and things like that. And, and it's this test of endurance. And the Bible says that we are to run our race with endurance, meaning there will be moments where we get tired, but we must keep going and, and hold fast. The fifth thing is godliness. We're to add godliness to our faith. And godliness, it sounds like a you know, scary Christian word, but godliness is just God-likeness. It's to be like Jesus. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, tells us that we are to exercise ourselves towards godliness. I mean, it's something that is not going to come. Will you build muscle without working out? No, you, just, you won't. And you will not become more godly. You will not become more like Jesus unless you exercise your faith and you begin to add these things. 1 Timothy 6.11 tells us that we ought to pursue godliness. What does that mean? What does that look like? It means in those moments, I mean, the, the cheesy bracelets of what would Jesus do, but it's having those moments in life where we come to a decision and say, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to be God-like, not in position, but in power in the sense to perform, to be able to make decisions that are right and according to what he would want. Six, brotherly kindness, that we are to add brotherly kindness to our faith. And this is that love between siblings. Hebrews 13.1 tells us to let brotherly love continue, that it should be happening. Romans 12.10 tells us to be kindly affectionate toward one another with brotherly love and to honor one another by giving each other preference. You know what it means to give each other preference? It means to prefer that person over yourself, meaning what you want and what someone else's want, you let them go and, and let them go. That's why in the parking lot today, when your parents are pulling out and they're trying to cut someone off, you should say, hey, we're going to try to give preference. No, you shouldn't say that. That would not go over well. But you guys understand what I mean. Number seven is love, that we are to add love to our faith. And this is to learn to unselfishly seek the best for others for their benefit. It's the principal quality in the Bible. It trumps all other qualities. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 tells us that everything we do must be done with love. It's all encompassing. And so these are the seven things that we are to add to our faith. This is the plan. This is halftime. And this is the game plan as we get uh, back into the game. That we are to be adding these things in a conscious way to our lives. And Peter goes on to describe in verse 8 and 9, and he describes the person uh, who would add these things and the person that would lack these things. 
if you look at verse 8, he talks about how the person that will have these things will abound in them, and they will be neither uh, barren or uh, unfruitful. It means that they will be of use. John 15, 5 says this. It talks about that Jesus says, if you abide in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Meaning, look, someone of the world could begin to add these things to their life. They could be like, okay, I'm going to try to be a virtuous person, or I'm going to be more loving, or I'm going to have self-control, I'm going to have perseverance. Sometimes these qualities describe non-believers very well, but the problem is without the foundation of faith, you just got a bunch of toppings. You just got a bunch of good things. But to truly have these in our lives and grow in them, Jesus has to be a part of us. We have to be a part of him, for without him, we can do nothing. But then look in your Bibles, look at verse 9. Verse 9 describes the person who lacks these. So let's say for you today, you're like, ah, I don't want to listen to Joel. Um, I don't want to listen to God's word. You might not say it like that, but you'll, we'll see this week uh, as you either put the word of God into practice or not. Um, but maybe you're like, ah, no, I'm good with my faith. I just want to get to heaven and I'll be there and I'm good. And let's say you do not give all diligence to add these things to your life. You don't think about the shopping cart next time you're there, right? You don't think about the high standards that you are to have for your personal body. You don't think about the, the standards of, that, that you should set for your eyes and what you do. You know, you just don't really care about the self-control thing. The Bible describes you, if that's your heart behind it. They say, uh, the Bible says here that you will be short-sighted. Is anyone uh, nearsighted in here? Right, nearsighted. I always get these confused. Nearsighted means you can't see far, right? It means you can see near. Yeah, so you can read, but you can't see far, Right. So the Bible said, that's literally this word, that you will be nearsighted. Not, it's not like, okay, you don't do these. You're going to start losing your vision. You're going to need to get glasses. It's talking about spiritually. It's talking about something beyond just your physical sight that you will be without understanding. Right? That's why the Bible says for people that come to faith, that the blind have been saved. Right? The blind can now see that Jesus removes the blinders from our eyes. But when we seek to just do nothing with our faith, the blinders actually begin to come on. The Bible says even to blindness. The the idea behind this is that it's self-imposed. It's not that someone went blind, but that someone is purposely shutting their eyes. I mean, imagine if you, you you went to your mom and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm blind. And she's like, you're just closing your eyes. And you're like, no, I'm just blind like, you're weird, kid. Open your eyes. But this is what that is. It's a self-imposed. You're just shutting your eyes. That's literally the word here for blindness. So much so that verse 9 says, you will begin to forget the cleansing of your sins, meaning you will begin to doubt. You guys ever struggle with doubts? Don't tell me. We all do to some extent. But I can tell you, if you do not add to your faith and you don't make it an effort to grow, you will begin to doubt the Lord. You will begin to doubt your salvation. And doubt is not a fun place to be. And doubt is the door that opens up all kinds of destructive things in your life. It's like someone being freed from prison and then like a week later, they go back and they're like, hey, I don't know how I got out. I'm supposed to be in here. And they're like, you're, you're freed. Like, go. And you're like, nah, no, I'm supposed to be in here. It'd be insane, right? But yet sometimes when we don't add to our faith and we're stagnant believers, in essence, that's what we're doing. And so in light of God's power and promises, you and I are to be partakers. We are to be diligent in our, in our exercising of our faith But the third thing I want to remind you of, and that Peter reminded his readers of, is to be certain, okay? Is to be certain. And the last two verses we'll look at today, verse 10 and 11. Are you guys good? Are you with me? Are you listening? If you didn't listen to anything I said the last two years, or if you didn't listen to anything I said in this entire sermon, at least listen to this last point, okay? 
I want to remind you there is one thing that we are to be absolutely certain and sure about. I'm sure you know it already. And in verse 10, he says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent, meaning that's a reference to what he talked about before, right? We're to be giving all diligence to add to our faith. Well, now verse 10, he says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent than adding those to your faith. There's something more important, and that's to make your call and election sure, As much time and effort and enthusiasm and passion we are to give to add to those seven qualities in our life, there's an area where we must be be even more diligent in. And this is that area that, that we talked about before, that if we add all these qualities to our life, but we don't have the foundation of faith, it's worthless. It's like playing Jenga in the air. It's not gonna, it's gonna be a mess. You see, Peter is writing to those who have faith, but he recognizes that some that might be reading or hearing the letter have the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power of God in their own lives. He understands that some of his readers might not have that foundation of faith. And so he says, make sure. Turn to your neighbor and say, make sure. Now turn to your other neighbor and guess what you're going to say? Make sure. You guys got to make sure. You have to make sure that of your call and your election. That word call, it means invitation. Hebrews 3.1 describes it as a heavenly calling. 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. It's that salvation call and that invitation that goes out to all men. Have you guys ever uh, RSVP'd for something before? Do you know what RSVP is? Okay, if you get like an invitation for a wedding, it'll be like, please RSVP, and you can email this link, or you can click on this. I remember when we had our wedding, uh, they had, you know, we sent those out, and we wanted people to RSVP. Uh, and I don't know if you know, but RSVP actually doesn't stand for English words. It's a French expression. Uh, it's rom- répondez s'il vous plaît, or something like that. It's French. I can't speak French, so there you go. It means please respond. And if an RSVP is written on the invitation, it means that the host is requesting that the guest will respond uh, to say that they're coming. And so when the Bible says that that you want to make your call sure or to be certain about it, it means, hey, make sure you RSVP'd. Hey, make sure you responded to the invitation. Okay? And then the second thing, it says make sure your call and election are sure. This is the word election means choice or selection. And this is referring to not your choosing. Your choosing was the RSVP, right? You're like, I'm in. I'll go to heaven. I'll get my sins forgiven. Sounds like a pretty good deal for me. God, I give you my life. Okay, cool. I put my faith in you. Faith is the foundation. And that's our choice. And we're just, we're just RSVPing to the call. But God has chosen as well. And God has sent out his invitation to all men, and our job is responding, and then we're part of the party. And then he chooses those who choose him. Let me give you examples. So like for us, when we had our wedding about four years ago now, which is crazy, um, when we had that and we got RSVPs back, right? We got people say, yep, I'll be at your wedding. Okay, sweet. And then we got some people say, nope, I won't be at your wedding. And we got some, they just didn't respond at all. Right? And then we made a seating chart. Now, do you think on the seating chart that we put people that weren't going to come? Do you think we put on the seating chart people that didn't respond? No. And so we initially put out the call, just like God puts out the call to salvation. Some people are repeated. And so then uh, we put them on the, on the guest list. And if they weren't on the guest list, they weren't getting in. And the same way God has put out his invitation. He's called you. You've either responded or by ignoring his response, you responded. You're like, how do I get God to choose me? Just choose him. And he already already invited you. Then you choose him. And then he puts you on the seating chart. Does that make sense? That's how it works. Don't let anyone freak you out. There's a doctrine that goes around that says that there's the elect and only some are and some aren't. No, you choose God. God chooses you. Okay. He's already put the invitation out. 
And so he exhorts his readers to be diligent to make this sure. He wants them to be certain about it. Peter wants his readers to have a confidence in the face of so much false teaching, to be fully convinced so that no one could come and convince them elsewhere. And I can tell you guys, if you're not fully convinced in your mind, that you're not sure and confident of your salvation, guess what Satan will use to mess you up? He'll use that. He'll get people to talk about different things and they'll mess you up because you were never confident. But isn't it true when you go and you research something and you're like, no, I, I did the diligence. Then when someone comes and tries to convince you of something else, aren't you a lot harder to sway then? It's because you're fully convinced in your own mind. See, today, guys, I want you to wake up. The Bible says that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Heaven is a real place. Everyone look at me. Eternity is forever. Have you RSVP? Have you responded? I sure hope so. We ought to be even more diligent to make that sure. But have you prepared? Maybe you put in the RSVP, but have you prepared? RSVP is the most important step to getting to heaven. But are you adding to your faith? Are you growing in your faith? The Bible says that God doesn't want us just to have everlasting life then. He wants it to start now. The Bible says that Jesus came to give an abundant life. That doesn't mean full of riches and, and, and pleasure with no suffering, but it does mean that he wants us to experience his peace and joy and compassion and things now. And so the question for you today is what qualities do you lack in? Out of these seven, which ones were convicting to you? I pray that God would continue to grow you in your faith, that by his power and his promises, you would add to your faith. All right, I'm going to pray, and then um, worship team will come out, and, and, and maybe they can just play a song, and uh, you guys can pray during that time. Does that sound good? Let's do that. Um, so we're out of the prayer. They'll worship, so you guys can pray for one another, and then we'll close. And as they're praying, as they're singing, pray, and then once you're done praying, we can just worship, all right? Lord, we just come before you, and we thank you for your power. Lord, that you don't just make empty promises to us, Lord, but that you come through always. Lord, I pray, I know for me as I'm looking at this, and even a silly thing like the shopping cart, Lord, I just pray that you would help me in the small things to be faithful, that I would be an example, that us here in this room, that we would be examples to the world that is broken. So Lord, go before us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.